Eternal life with God, right. In chapter 8 and verse 12, one of the more famous ones, Jesus said, I am the, starts with the L, the light, <laughs> the light of the world, right? So the world's in, because of sin, it's in darkness. Jesus came into this darkness as the light. Even men who are in the darkness couldn't perceive the light because they've been in the darkness for so long. So Jesus says, I'm that. I'm the light of the world. And it seems to me that's why that one's driven so much, because it's so significant. Jesus is the light of life. Okay? In chapter 10, you have two of them. One's in verse 9, where he's referred to as the door. He's the door of the sheep. He is the means of, of going in and out of the sheepfold. And then he's also in verse 11. He's the good shepherd. And the shepherd does what for the sheep? Yeah, whatever it is you said is right, because the shepherd does everything for the sheep, right? Sheep are very dependent on the shepherd for their nourishment and for their protection and, and care. Okay, and then in chapter 11, one of the more significant of the statements, which at least for Mary and Martha kind of set him apart, because a lot of people believed in resurrection. But Jesus says in chapter 11, verse 25, I am as God, I am the resurrection and the, and the life. And as a result of that declaration, he demonstrated it by doing what? Raising Lazarus from the dead. In chapter 14, similar, a very similar kind of statement, Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that also gets, you know, he's talking about, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to come back. We don't know where you're going, Thomas says. How can we know the way? And that's where he makes that statement at verse 6. I am the way. You know, I am the way. There isn't any other way. I am it. The way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then the seventh one is actually in chapter 15, very next chapter. At verse 1, Jesus is the true vine. Okay, he isn't a vine. He's the true vine, the one vine from which if we will draw nourishment from him, what will we be? We will be those who bear fruit to his glory. Okay. So that's Jesus testifying of himself. Jesus then calls here in John chapter five at verse 33 for John the Baptist. John the Baptist was also one who testified of Jesus. Now, did John the Baptist, you know, because he was a very popular preacher there for a while and people followed him everywhere, did he feel, you know, jealous or envious of Jesus and the work that he's doing? No, not at all. Not self-serving in any way. And in fact, when asked about it in John chapter 1 and verse 20, John says, I am not the Christ. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not him. So I love that. He deflected the interest of others to try and make him something that he really wasn't. He was an honest person, true to himself. And he had his own mission, right? To prepare the way of the Lord. In fact, Jesus is identified by John the Baptist in John chapter 1 at verse 29. And then it's stated the very next day in verse 36. He is the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. So I'm looking at John. I'm saying, okay, you say you're not the Christ. You say he's the Lamb of God. Can you just nail it down for us? And 
It was in this study of the book of John, I actually saw it. I, I don't know why I missed it before, but John makes a very pointed declaration in verse 34. He said, I have seen and testified that this, speaking of the Lamb of God, Jesus, is none other than whom? The Son of God, right? I've seen it, I'm a witness, and I testify to that fact. That's who he is. That was John the Baptist as a witness. A third witness that you find in John chapter 5 and verse 36 are the works. Now, I know you know the works, right? Mind your head this way. This is going to be many points on your exam because we hit these a lot. So in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, we have what work done by Jesus. Okay, turning the water into wine. That demonstrated what power of Jesus Power over quality, quality, right? It was the very best. In chapter 4, verses 43 to 54, we have what work done? Healing of the nobleman's son. What did that demonstrate about the power of Jesus? Okay, over distance. From Cana to Capernaum was about how many miles? About 20 miles, okay? So didn't even have to be there, which is significant. We thought as we went along, Jesus didn't have to even be in these places if he didn't want to. Just thought that was pretty extraordinary. Uh, in chapter 6, you actually have, or chapter 5, you have another healing, the healing of the man who has an infirmity. He had been infirm for how long? 38 years. What does that demonstrate about Jesus? His power over, okay, his power over time, 38 years, that's a long, long time. That was the amount of time we noticed that Israel was actually out there in the wilderness, right? 38 years. You say it was 40. Yeah, there was a kind of a, a prologue where they uh, even received the commandments of God, but basically walking around for 38 years. I just thought that was pretty interesting. That's a long time. We think about that wilderness wandering as forever. This guy was infirm forever, but Jesus, of course, healed him. And then in chapter 6, we have two of them. One of them, the most famous, seems like must be one of the most significant. That's in the first 15 verses, and it is what? Feeding of the 5,000. In verses 16 to 21, you have walking on the water. So when he fed the 5,000, what did that demonstrate about Jesus? Quantity, right? It's probably, uh, you know, loosely, we're making some assumptions. Could have been 20,000 people fed that day, given the families that are associated with the 5,000 men. Okay, so, wow, that's quite a quantity, given the very little that he started with. And then what about the walking on the water? What's, what's that power? Power over nature, the laws of nature. Uh, how many people can walk on water? Two Wait, two? I thought it was Jesus. Well, Peter did for a little while, right? <laughs> Until he lost his faith momentarily. Okay. And then chapter 9, you have another famous healing. In fact, it takes up most of the chapter, verses 1 to 41, and that's the healing of the blind man. And then in chapter 11, kind of the pinnacle, the one that really set Jesus apart, at least in the minds of Mary and Martha, and I'm sure Lazarus too, don't you reckon? <laughs> Was what event? The raising of Lazarus from the dead. First 45 verses. If you go through verse 53, you actually find out that 
he was so well accepted that they wanted to kill Lazarus again. <laughs> I mean, how do you get rid? You want to kill Lazarus because you want to get rid of what? The evidence. Is that what this book is about? Testimony and evidence. If we can get rid of Lazarus, what have we done? Gotten rid of the evidence. Okay, so the works are significant. The Father, I'm, I'm talking about God the Father, is also a great witness and gives testimony. And verbal testimony is given at least three times in the Scriptures, two of which are pretty famous. One is Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, where God is speaking from heaven when Jesus has been baptized, and He says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, he adds to that very same exact statement over in Matthew chapter 17 at verse 5. Yeah, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. What? Hear him. You listen to him as opposed to... Well, you listen to him alone as opposed to listening to Moses and the prophets and him. No, you just hear him. Listen to Jesus, my son. And then that keys with Hebrews chapter 1, 1 to 4. Okay, and then the one that most people uh, neglect or don't talk about is actually when Jesus goes into Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry. I don't know how triumphal it was because ultimately what happens on that trip? He's crucified, right? But in John chapter 12 at verse 28, the Father speaks. People can hear it. He talks about how... He is glorified in the Son. You know, what Jesus is doing, even through His sufferings, as I mentioned at the very beginning, even through suffering, God was glorified. So the Father very literally offers up testimony concerning His Son. And then, of course, all the Scriptures give testimony of Jesus, right? John 5, verse 29, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have what? eternal life. But these, the scriptures, are they which testify of me. Now watch that. You don't get the eternal life from just reading the scriptures. You get the eternal life from whom? From Jesus that's spoken of in the scriptures. So the scriptures aren't the end of it. The scriptures are supposed to take us somewhere, to teach us about somebody who can bring us eternal life. And Jesus says, these are they which are testifying of me. That reminds you of a statement like Luke 24 and verse 44. That text, after Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, describes his conversation with some disciples in which he takes the Old Testament scriptures, Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, and he shows them how that he's fulfilled those scriptures. That's, that's it. Those scriptures are fulfilled in Jesus. And the scriptures, all of them, bear witness to Jesus in some way. In fact, when we study Old Testament books, one of the things that ought to be a component of that is, how does this tell me about Jesus? Because if it doesn't do that, what purpose can it possibly serve? All of those are pointing us all the way to Jesus. And then, if you'll go over to chapter 15... You have two more that we didn't actually talk about last time that are just as significant because they also bear witness. And one of those is one that would extend the witness of the testimony of Jesus, and that is the Spirit Himself. John chapter 15 and verse 26. 
It says that when the Helper, and then he also refers to him as the Spirit of Truth comes, he will bear witness of me. Witness or testimony. The Spirit, when he came, after Jesus ascended the Father, he would send the Holy Spirit, John 16, verse 13, to remind the apostles of what? Everything that Jesus had said. So he was going to equip them to be able to share whatever it is that Jesus had said. Isn't that a remarkable thing? Nod your head this way. It's, it's like, wow. So they're going by virtue of their experience with Jesus and then the, uh, the disciples, and then by the power of the Holy Spirit, be reminded of everything that Jesus said so that they could give perfect testimony to what Jesus had said. How would that come handy? Well, I want somebody to read a couple of verses. Maybe we can split these up. One is Mark chapter 13 and verse 11. Who will read that text? Thank you, Rick. Mark chapter 13, verse 11. The other one is Luke chapter 12 and verse 11. Okay. Adam. We'll find out what good it would be that the Spirit could give witness. Well, what, how could that help? Okay, go ahead, Rick. You're there. You said Mark 13. Mark 13, verse 11. When they bring you to trial to deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand, but you are to say, whatever is given you at that hour, Okay, so I'm going to drag you. You're going to be in front of the court. Oh, no, what do I say? What do I say? Don't worry about it. Why not? Because it's going to be given. He said it would be given to them in that very hour what it is that they should say. Can you think of any instances in which some of those apostles who are carrying the gospel to the whole world, many of which, like the apostle Paul, went by themselves, stood before the Sanhedrin or stood before some kind of official and just immediately knew exactly what to say? You know, have any instances like that? Not Just nod your head this way. Yeah. Uh, the, the book of Acts is full of examples like that. How do I know what to say? What am I going to say? Don't worry about it. Holy Spirit empowered them, gave, bore witness through them, told them exactly what to say. And then, Adam, what uh, does your text say? Luke chapter 12 and verse 11. The synagogues and the rulers and the authorities do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. Don't worry about it. Remember Acts chapter 5? There they are. It looks like it's coming to a head, standing before the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, if you will. They want to know what's going on. They're, even Gamaliel gets into it. You know, one of the great teachers of the time. How could they stand against a great, not, uh, great mind like somebody named Gamaliel? How do you do that? Holy Spirit gave them exactly what? Gave them exactly what they needed to say to be able to deal with that. Did the Spirit give testimony through those circumstances to the fact of Jesus as the Son of God? Nod your head this way. Because every time, what did those apostles talk about? Jesus as the Son of God. Every single time. Okay, and then the final one of these is verse 27 of chapter 15. And that is the disciples themselves. Okay, we're at 20 till, so I'm going to give you these texts. And then what I would like for you to do is 
just kind of as you're wrapping it up, your follow-up study, look at these texts and, and see how beautiful the idea of witness by those first century uh, disciples, particularly the, particularly the apostles, uh, works out. One of those texts would be 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That is, a, that is a great text. I mean, John just lays it all out right there, honestly, about being a witness, how he was a witness. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And then, I'll just take you through uh, some examples in the book of Acts, okay? So just write book of Acts, and then I'm going to give you these texts, and later you're going to go back and read these texts and see in all these circumstances how what we saw just a moment ago about the empowerment by the Spirit worked out in the lives of these disciples who aren't just speaking for God, but could speak for God with great authority. Yeah, God's authority, but also they were eyewitnesses of it. They knew it was true. They could speak it with enthusiasm. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 22. Acts chapter 2, verse 32. Acts chapter 3, verse 15. Acts chapter 4, verse 33. Acts chapter 5, verse 32. In Acts chapter 10, verse 39. In every one of those instances, you're going to see the testimony, the witness emphasized, and then the great results as they have been empowered by God. John shares all these things with us. John is a book that when we study it, isn't just the accumulating of interesting facts, It is the mechanism by which God intends to develop in us an evidential faith. And not just ourselves, but to share that with someone else. The end. Amen. Thank you for your attention.
right, it's time for us to go ahead and get started tonight, if we can, please. We are very uh, happy that all of you have chosen to be here tonight, and we especially want to welcome those who may be visiting with us. We are truly honored that you're here, and we hope that you'll come back anytime that you can. Uh, we'll be meeting again for our regular service this coming Sunday morning at 9.30, and then our Bible classes at 5, and we'd love for you to be a part of that. I hope you uh, received a bulletin or got one of the bulletins tonight. You'll find a list of uh, updated uh, on the sick, and I hope you'll check that out and try to encourage as many people as you can. We want to express our sympathy uh, to the family of David Yates, who passed from this life early this morning. Uh, please remember Martha and Harley in your prayers and uh, the family at this particular time. Also, we express our sympathy to uh, Brother John Gardner and his family in the death of his daughter, Amanda South of Winfield, Alabama. Uh, visitation uh, with the family will be this coming Friday from 12 until 2, and the funeral will be at 2 at the Winfield Methodist Church. Also, we express our sympathy to Sister Linda Garrett and the death of her brother-in-law, Floyd Newton of Corinth. And this is also Kim Fowler's uncle, and uh, he was a longtime member of the Strickland congregation. We also want to extend our sympathy to Sister Julius Lee Waits, Wales, and the death of her niece, uh, Vicki White of Boonville. Uh, there are several activities that are coming up that uh, need your attention. Our youth and family retreat is May 6th through the 8th. Uh, get Ralph Gilmore as the speaker. This is for teens and their families, and you need to sign that list today. Uh, if you plan on attending that, see Jordan as well. I'm sure that will do. Also, a little over two days, three days, till our Living for Loss workshop. Uh, Living with Loss workshop is going to be here this coming Saturday, April the 30th. Uh, these advertisements are available with the specific details uh, in the back. Still not too late to invite some people to come and be a part of this. This is going to be very helpful not only to widows and widowers, but it's going to be helpful to married couples. It'll be very helpful to those who want to know how to better minister to those who've lost loved ones. And I need your help as well in signing the list. There's a list back in the back for greeters, for those that will help with cleanup and serve lunch and some other things. And if you've been intending to sign that list and you haven't, please do so tonight as uh, you leave the auditorium. Also, this coming Sunday night uh, at 5 o'clock, we won't be having our kids sing or our Bible classes because we're going to have Lads to Leaders Recognition Night. That's going to be an exciting time, and I hope you'll make your plans to be a part of that. For our devotional tonight, Chris Langley is going to be leading our singing. And uh, do what? What are you doing? Oh. I thought Joe was, uh, okay, Jerry, well, anyhow, somebody's going to be up here to lead our singing, and there'll be somebody to lead our prayer. A little, little clue here. <laughs> no, I was saying Anthony Acott will be uh, leading our closing prayer. We got a little mixed up on our uh, assignments, so I was assigned last week. I didn't show up, so... We're back. We're getting square. 
Um, if you would turn to number 923, 923, just a short song for the invitation. Uh, we will sing that at the appropriate time. And after we have marked your songbook there, uh, turn over a few pages to 953. 953. We'll sing that before. Uh, the devotion talk. God put a rainbow in the cloud. Let's sing the first and fourth verses. We got There's certainly an emotional component in love. We need to understand that true love is not just emotion. True love, biblical love, is a decision. It is a deliberate act of the will. You know, the Bible, I think, gives us some indications that we can use to measure our true love for God. And the way we can measure our love for God is to simply look at the Bible. I want to mention three things briefly tonight. First of all, our love for God is measured by how much we love each other. The Bible says, Whoso hath this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how dwells the love of God in him? 1 John chapter 3 and verse 17. 
First John chapter 4 and verse 20 says, If a man say, I love God, but hate his brother, he's a liar. For he who loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he possibly love God whom he hath not seen? Now one may proclaim boldly and loudly how much they love God. But if their actions do not indicate and do not show that they're seeking the well-being of others, then really that individual doesn't love God like he may think he does. Another way that we can measure our love for God according to the Bible is how much we hate sin. The Bible says in 1 John 2 and verse 15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the Father, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see, the real measure of how much we hate sin is, is not how disgusted we may get at somebody else's sin and somebody else's wrong wrongdoing, but rather the level of the disgust we have regarding our own sin. You know, the Bible says in Psalms 97 and verse 10, hate evil, you who love the Lord. So how do I measure my love for God? Well, how much do I really love my brethren in Christ? How much do I love people? Secondly, how much do I hate sin? And then thirdly, our love for God is measured by whether or not we submit to God and render obedience to his word. You know, the Bible says, whoso keeps his word in him, the love of God is truly perfected. By this we know that we are in him. 1 John 2 and verse 15. The Bible says this is the love of God, that, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome, 1 John 5 and verse 3. You see, here's a point where many who profess to love God in reality prove that they do not. They do not take God at his word and do what God says. You know, one time I had a Bible study with a man that just simply refused to accept the need that he ought to be baptized in order to be saved. And at one point, you know, we turned and read John 14, verse 15, which says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And this gentleman avowed his belief in what Jesus said. And then we couple that verse with what Jesus said in Mark 16, verse 16, where Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. And it was there that this individual balked and he would not obey the gospel. And then I posed this question for this individual. If Jesus wants you to be baptized and you refuse to, then according to John 14 verse 15, do you really love Jesus? Because Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what I say. And tragically, in that particular case, this man never did obey the gospel. And so I hope you'll think about this question tonight as we 
extend the Savior's invitation. How much do you love God? Do you love God in that you love other people, that you hate sin, and that you're willing to submit to God's commandments? It may be tonight that some here need to submit to God's ordinance of baptism. Maybe you know you're lost and without hope and Tonight, you need to come in simple trusting faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, repenting of your sin, confessing His name, and being immersed in water for the remission of your sins, Acts 2 and verse 38. And so tonight, if you need to respond to heaven's call, we ask that you come now while we stand and sing. Father, we want to thank you for this day. We want to thank you for all life and many wonderful blessings. We want to thank you for this opportunity we've had to come together and study in a portion of my word. Pray, Father, that you would be with the sick and afflicted and minister unto them according to thy will. Be with the bereaved, comfort them the way thou knowest best. Pray now, Father, that you would guide the hands of the doctors for the sick and afflicted and that they will make return back to normal walks of life. And I pray now, Father, that you go with us as we depart, bring back us next point in time. These things we ask in Jesus' name.